Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. The late Fred Craddock, professor of New Testament and preaching, used to have an exercise that he had his students engage in. In the interest of creating greater creativity within them, greater thoughtfulness within them, he would tell a story partway through, end it partway through, and then give them the assignment of finishing the story before they came back to class the next time. So here's one of the stories that Dr. Craddock used. Once upon a time, in a town near you, an ordinary church, dealing with all the ordinary realities of church life, caught on fire. The flames licked up all of the church building. In fact, so intense were the flames that the firefighters could not put them out. The church was reduced to ashes. The people now had nowhere to meet. As they began that first day or two to cast about, to think about what their options would be, they were approached by the local funeral director. The funeral director said, We have a chapel. We don't typically hold funeral services during the time you meet for worship. Come and use our funeral chapel. And so the church leaders thought about it. Could we proclaim the resurrection in the place of the dead? Could we meet for worship where death is featured? Having no other option, they accepted. Began to meet in the funeral chapel. And it came to pass. And right there, Dr. Craddock ended. That's your assignment, student, for next time, finish the story. Now, unless I miss my guess, there are some of you who have already finished that story in your minds. You're thinking, well, based on the realities of the church in the Western world anyway, I can tell you what happened, you say. What happened is the church went into the funeral parlor and there it died. That's the end of the story. Well, if you said that, I I can understand. I mean, I've traveled some in Europe enough to know what's happened to the church in the Western world. I remember standing in front of a beautiful cathedral, in the Netherlands it was, asking the tour guide, can we go in? Having him laugh, laugh in my face. Nobody meets here for church, he says. We don't go to church anymore. These buildings, they're so magnificent. We use them for other things. This one is an office building. Some of them are apartment buildings or exercise gyms, or clubs, or bars, or restaurants. Nobody goes to church. So maybe that's the reality, at least in the Western world. The church goes into the funeral home, and there it dies. We're aware of the struggles of the church, aren't we? 
We have groups that meet, church board, strategy sessions, trying to talk through what do we do. And we ask all kinds of questions, traditional or contemporary, organ or drums, worship leader or choir director. We ask other questions as well. Mission-focused or care for the saints? Reach the loss or comfort those who already believe? Do we get politically involved or stay politically agnostic? Do we try to reach the hungry and the thirsty or do we merely evangelize? What exactly do we do? We sort through these questions trying to come up with a path forward for the church. What should we do? What should the church do? I was curious this last week, so at my computer I typed into the Google search bar something have to do, having to do with how to increase your church attendance. First page that came up, I clicked on the first hit. It was a blog. The writer of the blog suggested four ways that you could increase church attendance. First way was to revamp your website. Second way was to take care to have a good first impression. The third way was to update your children's ministries. And the last way, cupcakes for everyone. Literally, cupcakes for everyone. These four steps, said the writer, will help your church grow its attendance. And then he took note of two things that had been done by churches, church pastors, in the attempt to draw in new people so that the church would not just survive, but so that the church would thrive. One of them was preaching a sermon, maybe even a series, on biblical sexuality. In the interest of that, he and his wife camped out on a bed on the church roof for 24 hours. That'll bring them in. Another one said, the next Sunday after Easter is always a low Sunday, he said. So, I will guarantee my church family, if we exceed 4,000 in attendance, I will shut myself into a box for four days. 4,006 people came. So into the box went the pastor. I don't feel bad for him. It was a nice box, air-conditioned. There was a chair there, electricity, computer, iPhone. He wasn't in bad shape. And I read that, and I wondered, is that the answer? Cupcakes for everyone? That will revitalize the church? I agree with those of you who have concerns about the health and well-being of the church. I've watched what happens in our church culture. I've read literature about it. I understand. I read that when surveys are taken in this country about religious affiliations, and people have all those boxes that they can check, that the one that is increasing the most rapidly is that one at the end, the one that says none, N-O-N-E, none, no affiliation. I'm agnostic. I'm atheist. That, say the researchers, is the box that is increasing the most rapidly. Some take issue with that, but many say that is definitely the one. In fact, they now call people who check that box the nuns. It's time for the church to do some thinking. 
It's time for some legitimate concern. So thus it is that we begin a series today, a series simply entitled Seven Ideas That Could Save the Church and One More That Could Change the World. So today we begin with the first idea. The idea is very simple. The idea is this, maybe we're asking the wrong question. Maybe the best idea is to ask the right question. Because what happens in these settings where we're wrestling with what to do about the church is that we ask the question, what should the church do? How should the church respond? How can we more effectively be about our mission, God's mission in the world? Bottom line, what should the church do? I wonder. I wonder if that's the wrong question. Maybe, maybe the question we should be asking is, what is God doing in the world? What is God's mission on this planet? And when we know the answer to that question, then we simply join what it is that God is already doing. Because the truth is, God has always had a mission. We get inklings of that mission very early on in Scripture. Within three chapters, two and a half chapters of the beginning of the Bible, we already have hints of what God's mission is. Later, Paul will tell us that this mission has always been in the heart of God. If something went wrong in His creation, it has always been there. But we first begin to see it at the fall of humankind, Adam and Eve, fleeing into the forest, trying to find a place to hide. And then we hear the plaintive question of an abandoned God. Adam, where are you? Where are you? Can you hear it in God's voice? Can you sense it in his soul? It's that plaintive query of every jilted lover, of every abandoned parent, of every fractured friendship. Where are you? There is suddenly a gulf between us. We are alienated. We are no longer together. Where are you? I want reconciliation. In fact, maybe that one word more than any other captures the mission of God on this planet, reconciliation. And he begins that process with that question. God has always had a mission, but it doesn't end with that question. A few chapters later, we come to the calling of a man named Abraham, and we see that now the form that God's mission takes in the world is a man, a man with his family. God tells Abraham in Genesis 12, through you, all peoples, all nations in the earth will be blessed. All peoples. There's this sense of bringing us all together by this one blessing that God will extend. Togetherness. Reconciliation. But it doesn't stop with a question. 
or with a person, it then moves to a nation. A nation that will be called Israel on its way out of Egyptian slavery with Moses in the lead. I want you to listen to what Exodus 19 records. Listen to God's word speaking about his ongoing mission. Exodus 19, beginning in verse 3, Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you must speak to the Israelites. A kingdom of priests. What is a priest? A priest is a go-between between God and humanity. In fact, the Latin word that is translated priest or high priest in English is the word pontifex. It literally means bridge builder. A priest is a bridge builder, building, building a bridge over the chasm that separates divinity from humanity, bringing them together, reconciling them. And God is saying to the people of Israel, you will be a kingdom of priests, with the implication being, you will be my bridge to humanity. It's not just about you. It's about reconciling all people together and to myself. That mission started with a question, continued in a person. Now it has come to a nation. Before we leave the concept of the nation, I have to take you over to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 49. This is found right in the context of a section deal with the servant, the Lord's servant. In fact, in, a, in just not that many verses, two or three chapters, we will come to that very well-known passage that is part of this whole section in Isaiah, where it is said, He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. With His stripes we are healed. It's a messianic section. But earlier in that section... I want you to listen to these words and how reflective they are of the mission that God has always had in the world. Isaiah 49, starting verse 5, And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to himself and gather Israel to himself, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and to bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Could it be more clearly stated? This mission that God has always had these people that are God's people, this nation, now God is saying, through this nation, through my servant, I will reach out to the very ends of the earth and save them, reconcile them to myself. You will be a light to the nations. God has always had a mission. And that mission will be seen in the life, uniquely in the life of that suffering servant named Jesus Christ.
who when he appeared on the scene would appear preaching the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. He went about the task of reconciling the world to God. And then it would be following the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that His Spirit would empower this people. And once again, God's mission is clear, but God's methods continue to adapt because now it will no longer be a nation. Now it will be a church, the ecclesia, who will be set about doing this mission. I don't know that it's better stated than the way Paul states it in his second letter to the Corinthians chapter 5. Listen to how he articulates the mission that we who belong to the church are to be engaged in, the mission that God has always had in the world. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning with verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. It's the same mission God has always had. That original question echoes down through the tunnels of time. Adam, where are you? There's alienation now between us. So now my mission will be insistent, consistent, persistent to reconcile humanity with divinity, Humanity with each other, humanity with the created order, the reconciliation of all things in Christ. Because that is the supreme work in which Jesus engaged. One more passage. You permit me one more. This one also from the pen of Paul. His letter to the church in ancient Colossae, Colossians chapter 1. It's a rather dense biblical passage. I'll admit that up front theologically loaded. In fact, maybe it will be helpful to read just a word, just a brief paragraph from Norman L. Geisler, New Testament scholar, about this passage in Colossians 1 before we read it so you can get a sense of what will happen there. So listen to what Geisler writes. In this paragraph, the paragraph we're going to read, verses 15 to 20, Paul mentions seven unique characteristics of Christ which fittingly qualify him to have the supremacy. Christ is, one, the image of God. Two, the firstborn over creation. Three, the creator of the universe. Four, the head of the church. Five, the firstborn from the dead. Six, the fullness of God. And seven, the reconciler of all things. No comparable listing of so many characteristics of Christ and his deity are found in any other scripture passage. Christ is the supreme sovereign of the universe. So now let's read the passage. Colossians 1, beginning in verse 15. 
The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Seven realities at the apex of which is number seven, the perfect number in Scripture, Christ is the reconciler of all things. Because that's the mission that God has been and continues to carry out in the world, to reconcile us his created order, us with each other, and especially us with God. That's the mission of God. It's always been God's mission. Now, I want you to think about this one-sentence quote from Old Testament scholar and missiologist Christopher J.H. Wright. Listen to what Wright writes. It is not so much that God has a mission for His church in the world, but that God has a church for His mission in the world. In other words, the mission is primary, unchanging. God has always had that mission. The church is the vehicle through which God now carries out that mission in the world. We heard it in a question, we saw it in a person, we observed it in a nation, Now, then we saw it in Jesus Christ, His Son, now we see it in the church. But it's always the same mission. Therefore, when the church stumbles and is uncertain of its future, and we, when we are tempted to ask, what should the church do? We're asking the wrong question. The right question is, what is God doing? What is God doing in the world? What has God always been doing in the world? What will God continue doing in the world? Once we answer that question, then we merely need to pray for the insight, the wisdom, and the strength to align ourselves with what God is doing. And when we do that, friends, look out. We will no longer have to worry about the church. Why do I say that? Because I've watched what happens when people are perfectly aligned with what God is doing. Nowhere more evident than in the mission, the message, and the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. The supreme reconciler of all things, says Paul. What did it look like in his life? Have you looked of late? 
to people who felt alienated from God, cut off from God, unworthy to be received by God. Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said, drop dead, dad, I want my money. He took it and wasted it in a far country. When he came to in the slime of the swine, there was just one word in his mind, home. As he staggered toward home, he formulated the speech he would give to his father, maybe to be taken in as a servant. But as he stumbled down the lane, his father ran to him, embraced him. We're going to have a party, he said. My son is home. Reconciliation. That was Jesus. To those who knew what it was to have their bellies ache and groan and grumble with hunger, Jesus said, sit down. Sit down. We're going to have a picnic. And taking what a little boy had, he just kept giving it, giving it, giving it to his disciples until their bellies were full. He was telling people, what happens to you physically matters to God. When you're reconciled fully to God, you're no longer hungry. The same Fred Craddock I mentioned earlier said it best when he said, whenever you have some who eat and some who don't, whatever you have, you don't have the kingdom of God. Reconciliation. To those who were politically polarized, cut off and vengefully angry with one another. You know what Jesus did? He found a man named Matthew, a tax collector, had sold his soul to the occupying force for survival, but also to allow him to line his own pockets with the money of his fellow countrymen and women. Despised tax collector. And Jesus said, follow me, Matthew. And then Jesus found Simon, the zealot, the freedom fighter, the one who would just have soon slipped a knife between Matthew's ribs as look at him. And he said to Simon the zealot, follow me, Simon. And then he set them down at the same table. He broke bread. He poured that liquid of life into the chalice. And he gave it to them both. Eat this. Drink from it, all of you. Sellouts and zealots. Reconciliation. He spoke to those who were so deeply burdened with the religious rules of the day that they had no hope of ever pleasing God. And he said to them, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden. To me, he said, a person-centered faith. 
to those who felt they didn't have enough faith to qualify, who cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. He responded in healing to those who felt cut off from the church of their day, who heard the message from the church, you're too bad a sinner, there's nothing we can do for you. Jesus looked at them, paralyzed, unable to move or help themselves. Simply said, child, God is not angry with you. Your sins are forgiven. Everywhere he went, he reconciled. He reconciled people to God. He reconciled people to one another. He reconciled people with their creative selves, created selves. Reconciliation at every step of the way. So much so that John the Revelator tells us that there will come a day in the presence of Jesus when every tongue will shout and confess, worthy, worthy is the Lamb that was slain from every tribe, kindred, nation, tongue, people, all reconciled to God and to each other. That's what it looks like when we align ourselves with this ongoing, ever-present mission of God. What would it look like for us as a church today? What if rather than being known for being haughty about our faith, angry at those who don't agree with us, rejecting of those who don't conform to the standards that we might adhere to in our own lives, what would it mean if instead of doing that, we aligned ourselves with the mission of God in the world? rather than joining the politically divided cacophony around us? What if we work for peace? Stand for truth. Stand for justice. But with the purpose of peace. What if we unite rather than divide? What if we accept rather than reject? What if we begin every day with the prayer, God, where can I work for reconciliation in my world today? What if the church aligns itself with the mission of God rather than trying to get God to bless our feeble and faulty plans? Seven ideas that could save the church. That sounds awfully lofty, Randy. Well, maybe the first idea is the most important one of all. And that idea is simply this. Ask the right question. Don't ask the question, what should the church do? How can we come up with plans and initiatives and strategies that God can bless? That's the wrong question. Maybe the question we truly need to ask is, what is God doing in the world? What has God's mission been? And how can we then align ourselves with that mission? Because if the building is crumbling, you don't paint the building. You rebuild the foundation. And so Dr. Craddock, said to his students, the church moved into the funeral home. 
And it came to pass, and they had to finish it. Do you know what? If that church is asking the right question, I know how that story ends. Here's how that story ends. And it came to pass that within a few weeks, the funeral director threw the church out of his building. You can't stay here, he said. You're ruining my business. My business is death and you're bringing life. My business is ending and you're beginning. My business is dealing with sorrow and you are revitalizing and resurrecting and changing people's lives. Because that's what happens when the church aligns itself with the mission of God.